I've always wanted to do that. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Kira Krivash, a magistrate at the Cuyahoga County Court of Common Pleas Juvenile Division. And today we are at Happy Dog in Cleveland's Gordon Square District, taking on the SCOTUS nomination. The politics and tensions over the nomination process for the Supreme Court justices has escalated in recent years. The sudden death of Justice Antonin Scalia in early 2016 led to a fierce debate whether there was a lame duck period for presidential nominations to the Supreme Court. Then just 46 days before the 2020 presidential election, tensions further escalated during an expedited process to confirm Justice Amy Coney Barrett after the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now, Justice Stephen Breyer has announced his retirement and President Joe Biden fulfilled a campaign promise to nominate a woman of color to the nation's highest court. If confirmed, Judge Ketanji Jackson, uh, excuse me, Brown Jackson would become the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court, adding yet another layer to the debate during a time when race and equity efforts are facing increasing attacks. So what obstacles and opportunities does the Biden administration face to confirm Judge Jackson? And what is the future of the Supreme Court and its influence in the era of politics? We are joined today by four local experts to discuss what is at stake. We have Jonathan Adler, professor of law and director at the Center for Business Law and Regulation at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. We also have Reginald O, professor of law at Cleveland State University Marshall College of Law. We also have Jeremy Paris, principal at the Raven Group and former chief counsel for nominations and oversight at the Senate Judiciary Committee. And we have Marky Robinson, an attorney at Eaton. If you have questions for our panelists, you can do so in the second half of our program, or you can text them to 330-541-5794. Again, that's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club. We'll try to work them in. Jonathan, Reginald, Jeremy, and Marky, welcome to Happy Dog. <laughs> All right, and getting things started. For our listeners out there who may not be familiar, could you explain a little about the Supreme Court of the United States nomination process, where we are in that process, and the power that it holds right now? <laughs> Any anyone can start. That's totally up to you. Counsel, oh, you're looking at me. You did you did this work. I'm in, uh, yeah, I'm in the uh, singer songwriter mic position. So just be happy I'm not breaking up free bird. Um, I'm very toned up. So uh, we are just about done with this process. So just just to follow on the, the main parts of the process. First of all, these are lifetime appointments to the U.S. Supreme Court. Because they're lifetime appointments, there's a whole lot of attention focused on them because these are justices that will serve for decades. Uh, you know, President Trump was in office four years. Three of his nominees are confirmed to the Supreme Court and are going to be there for decades and decades. So that legacy will run in addition to all the lower court nominees, the, the district court and circuit court nominees. So the main part of the process is that the uh, nominees fill out a questionnaire, which is everything they ever wrote or said or did. Uh, and then you have a confirmation hearing. And there are confirmation hearings for all the judges that are nominated, but for the Supreme Court, they're these sort of, uh, you know, the lights are brighter, right? They're multi-day affairs. Instead of five-minute question rounds, they're like 30-minute question rounds. Um, we, can, we can talk a little bit about how, how this uh, 
this hearing different from past hearings. But uh, she, Judge uh, Jackson completed her hearing two weeks ago. Uh, she was reported out of the Senate Judiciary Committee, the relevant committee, uh, on Monday. Uh, uh, now she's going through a series of procedural votes. It gets really confusing, mm -hmm. but I expect her to be confirmed with a bipartisan vote, three Republicans joining all the Democrats uh, by Friday, perhaps tomorrow night. Uh, the, the, the way the procedures go, it could take until Friday, but uh, the senators want to get out of town for the Easter recess and they have Codell, so uh, we call it jet fumes. Um, and then, you know, this, this unbelievable thing is going to happen, which is that she will be the first black woman on the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, it, it, it really is, uh, it's hard to believe we're in the 220th year of the country and this is the first time that we're there. She's also the fourth uh, woman currently serving on the court in a, in a court of nine. So we're getting a little closer to parity uh, on, on that. Um, I, think, I, I think we'll all probably have thoughts on parity, but, but that's where we are in the process. Um, I, I, I will say that we, we have generally seen, and we're going to talk about this, you know, there's always an invitation for senators to play politics around the Supreme Court nominations, partly because there are politicians and the lights are bright. Uh, people are paying attention. I think two things happen at once in these hearings, and I'm really curious what, what the co-panelists think of this. One, there, there's this really searching kind of uh, serious set of questions about what kind of justice uh, the nominee will be, because this is the one democratic moment in the process. You know, as justices, really, we don't see their work very much. People like the professors here read the opinions and understand them. People like me read the opinions and don't understand them uh, uh, when they come down. But we don't really watch justice at work. What, what gets locked in is who they are at their hearing. It's the one moment people pay attention. People talk about the direction of the court, judicial philosophy. Where are we? There's a lot going on at the court right now. So, so there's, a, there's a reason that it's such a serious process. And as I said, they'll be on the court for decades. Second thing that's happening, and I think it happened too much this time, and I'm going to say a provocative thing at the end to make this fun, but also because I believe it. Um, you know, you have senators positioning themselves in front of cameras, and I think in this instance, a number of the senators, uh, uh, certainly on the Republican side, were very focused on midterm politics, on what they consider to be the vulnerabilities of the Biden administration. They want to be in charge of the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, come January, and so I knew going in, they would be talking, they, they think that the president is, is uh, vulnerable on crime. They're going to cast her as a former federal defender as, as soft on crime. I staffed six hearings uh, in the Senate Judiciary Committee for six of the justices currently on the court. And they're always heated. They're always high drama. They're always important. They're always questions. But I, I have never been as disappointed in the behavior of some of the senators that, 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 really went over the top to, to yell at her to bring QAnon conspiracy theories about uh, uh, child pornography uh, that, that, that were the most thoroughly debunked things I'd ever seen into the process. Uh, and, and really they sort of yell over her, the, the sort of code word is she had to persevere. Nobody should have to persevere at a hearing. And I think that it's not a good sign for the process going forward. So I, 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 I expect we'll, uh, we might have different thoughts about that. But that's where we are. So we're, we're sort of towards the end. And by the way, whoever scheduled this on April 6th, good guess. This is the single last day this is going to be a relevant discussion. Then you're all going to forget about this uh, for another couple of years. We hope. How's that for a filibuster? <laughs> I guess I'll comment, since I'm not an expert on the process, I'll comment on the last part of the question. 
which was about the power of the nomination. Um, I think the women in this room can testify to the power of um, having four women on the court at once, especially, especially when so many of our rights as pertains to our bodies are literally under attack every day um, through legislation. I think it matters that there are people um, who give birth, who could give birth uh, here in some of these issues. Um, I think in this particular moment in history, the power of a promise filled um, by President Biden to a very faithful voting bloc in Black women in America um, cannot be understated. Um, I think if you if you post people, they would feel like politicians often cater to us during the election and then forget about us while they're in office. And this is a promise made, a promise kept that will reverberate with people that support it um, by actually push them up to the top of the ticket during the primaries. And then the last powerful thing that can't be understated is the intersection of uh, Justice Jackson being both a Black woman with a history of public service. Um, one thing I noticed during her hearing is how much time she spent just being a regular person, talking about how she was a mom, talking about how she was a patriot, talking about how um, she has police in her family, talking about how her parents influenced her. It's really something to live under the spotlight and to live your life as one of a few or, or to sit in positions where you're often a token. But she actually had the ability to show people, I'm extraordinary, but I'm also extraordinarily just like you. This country is important to me. The promises that were made at the founding of this country are important to me. They apply to me and I'm here to demand that I get the right to participate in one of the highest institutions of the country. So, I mean, the power here can't be understated. Okay. I'll just um, I'll comment a little bit about the process. Um, I won't I won't take all of your bait, Jeremy, but, but I'll take a little bit. We, we met debating judicial nominees uh, 10 years ago. Years ago. Yeah. Um, I'm ready. So, I mean, we, in thinking about this process, our, in our country, judicial nominations have ebbed and flowed in terms of how controversial they've been, right? In, in the founding era, Federalist judges versus non-Federalist judges was a huge deal. Um, um, the midnight judges that were appointed at the end of the Adams administration, for example, um, folks were, were voted down um, uh, in the founding era. Um, in the late 20th century, for a period of time, we went through a period where the idea was that if someone was qualified and they were not corrupt, they should be confirmed. Um, what we saw, whatever it was, two weeks ago now, um, I think is the, the low point of the departure from that norm. Um, uh, but it is it was, in many respects, what some of us have been saying was the endpoint we were going to reach. Um, if the standard is you should vote against someone who doesn't share the dominant judicial philosophy of your party, well, then you should expect party line votes and you should expect all but a handful of senators 
from um, from states that tend to vote the other way in presidential elections um, to vote against the nominee. That's what we saw, for example, with Justice Alito's nomination. It's what we're unfortunately seeing here. Um, if the standard is that um, despite the what I believe is the core principle of the legal profession, which is all people, uh, rep no matter what they represent, deserve to have legal representation. And therefore, as a lawyer, it is improper for me to disparage someone's choice of clients. If we break that, that norm, which we've been breaking for years, I've been saying this for 15 years, that I feared the day someone whose public service was as a public defender appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee because we know what those questions look like if you've been a public defender. Uh, if you've had to do make tough sentencing decisions. And sure enough, you put politicians that want to run for re-election, that want to get on cable news, that want to position themselves for a presidential primary, they're going to take that bait. Um, you have a process that is about scoring political points. This is the low point it gets. And I'm hoping it doesn't get lower, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not confident of that. But what I think it suggests is that if, if we don't like this about the process, we do need to think seriously about what the standards are and should be. I mean, I'm, I'm someone who agrees with the Mitt Romney statement, elections have consequences. If the president nominates someone that's clearly qualified as Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson unquestionably is, you vote for them. And if you don't like it, win an election, get your guy or, or, or gal elected as president, and then you'll get to vote for people whose philosophy you like. Um, but that's not where we are, and, and we didn't get there in the last month, right? This was a long time coming, um, and um, I hope that enough people that are involved in the process can kind of look over their shoulders and see the path that, that we've been on in their own way they've contributed to that path and realize that this is not a direction we should keep going on. Yeah, I completely agree, and in terms of the change in how confirmation hearings take place, and the polarization, uh, here's the difference. Justice Scalia, Justice uh, Ginsburg, and Justice Breyer, nominated in the 80s and 90s, their votes, uh, the votes were overwhelmingly bipartisan. 80 to 90 plus senators voted to confirm. That, I think that era is over, at least for the foreseeable future. That's not gonna happen, I, I can't imagine in our lifetime. Um, and these kinds of votes, all on party lines is going to be uh, the norm, and that is that's a real problem. Uh, the, the politicization and the polarization that's affecting the nomination process, and there are a lot of uh, confirmation that sent some a lot of questions asked that didn't really get to. I think that the question <coughs> should have focused uh, on what kind of justice will she be? Is she competent? Is she um, able to be? take on the mantle of the Supreme Court justice. And there are a lot of questions that were, didn't get to that at all. Um, and, but uh, just one, one Senator's questions that I thought actually had some substance and he had seemed to actually care about her constitutional jurisprudence, how she would be as a justice was actually Ben Sachs. I would watch, I'd encourage you to watch the video of his questions about Justice Jackson, where it was really focused on substance. What is her view? What are her views about how to interpret the constitution? And it was fortuitous, um, kind of synchronous, uh, synchronistic, uh, that I teach constitutional law. And on Monday, I taught a class where I signed readings by Justice Breyer and Justice Scalia about their constitutional theories and how they interpret the Constitution. 
And the next day, what happens? Justice, uh, sorry, Ben Sass asked, what do you think, what's the difference between Justice Scalia and Justice Breyer's constitutional theories? So it's just like, oh, I just asked this uh, yesterday. <laughs> uh, and the student asked me, did you time this? Was this deliberate? Um, but anyway, uh, I really encourage you to look and watch that video. At least, you know, there's some, some measure of substance that was there and to learn more about um justice just uh soon to be justice jackson's understanding and thinking about the constitution the, the only right answer to that question is yes yes i did time it <laughs> i have that much power i am your professor well it seems that you all kind of touched upon the next couple questions so i can merge them together a little bit and i know jonathan kind of mentioned this about taking the political base and political posturing and reginald just touched on this as well but there have been some arguments that the scotus nominations have been always a bit intense uh but now that we have social media and 24-hour news channels do you feel that this has just amplified the process and also, how would you compare Judge Jackson's confirmation hearings to Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation? Do you feel that future confirmations will result in a bipartisan divide? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not taking first this time. I want to respond to Jonathan, not uh, TMO. We'll, we'll go this way. Um, <laughs> so in terms of social media, I think it has, uh, and Jonathan alluded to, it's gotten much more intense, um, less civil less nakedly you know, partisan, um, and I don't think that was true before. In terms of when it all started, though, I would I suggest that it goes actually all the way back to the 80s and the confirmation hearings about Judge Robert Bork. Right. And the whole term getting Borked started with Judge Bork. And so it's not about Democrats or Republicans doing the politicization. It's been all sides. And since or um, who, what, whose nomination got derailed based on his writings. Um, and in that case, so there was Ford and then Ginsburg also was replaced, a Reagan nominated him to replace Ford, and then his nomination got derailed. Uh, and then eventually Anthony Kennedy was uh, nominated by uh, President Reagan, and then he did finally get confirmed. So I think we can trace it all the way back to that moment. And I think people might, uh, who are liberals might say that was a good result, right? We got Anthony Kennedy instead of Robert Bork. But in terms of what the effect it had on the process, in terms of politicizing the process, um, and the kind of dissecting all the past writings of the you know the nominee to kind of get it a gotcha moment, I think that's been a problem. And I I don't know the solution. I don't know if there's a path where this all changes. Uh, I don't know if Jonathan has some thoughts about that, but um, in terms of the evolution, and it's just really, and then with Kavanaugh's hearing, that also was um, something else, and, and then this hearing. Um, so, so you can trace evolution, and hopefully this is the bottom, and it can't get any worse, but we'll have to see. That's not a challenge, by the way. No, of course ah. not. No, I'm not challenging to say it get worse. Um, so two things. One, um, I don't. One thing we just know about confirmation hearings is that they were a 20th century invention, and the modern Senate confirmation hearing for judicial candidates was invented for really awful reasons. Um, I mean, the first kind of beginning was Brandeis, and essentially, what were anti-Semitic suspicions about what the problems would be about putting a Jew on the Supreme Court, 
And then kind of the next big step up was Thurgood Marshall. And, you know, yes, you know, in, in, at that time period, the, the way the senators would ask their questions at least had the pretense of, of, of being more genteel and refined. But you watch those hearings and or read those transcripts, and it's really ugly. And that was a type of hearing that hadn't, I guess, a Second Circuit nomination, I think, was the first one. But that was an innovation. It was because senators wanted the opportunity to go after a nominee. So I, I'm, I don't have this romantic view of nomination hearings as this great public education moment, because that's not where they were created. They were created to feed suspicion and beat up on, on folks um, for the ugliest of reasons. Um, social media is jet fuel for that, right? Yeah. Um, you know, why did Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley um, or Tom Cotton do the things they did? Because it would get clips on Fox News, it would create uh, 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 video clips, clips for Twitter, and sure enough, you know, they get invited on whomever. And um, similar, you know, there's a, there's a similar dynamic on the left in terms of playing for what is now a segmented media environment. Uh, in this case, it was things like Cory Booker's uh, 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 moving comments um, uh, to Judge Jackson at the hearing, which was certainly a you know very a very important um, uh, part of the hearings. But you know, the senators had the incentive because of the way social media works to not play to the nation, but to play to the portion of their base that they will think they think will be most motivated or energized by their niche or perhaps extreme take on it. Right? Who's going to be the toughest against? The Biden nominee, well, if that's what plays on the your cable news channel, and that's what plays on your Twitter feed. That's the incentive you have, and um, I don't know how you undo that. But but you know, so you know, people aren't playing for the same media environment. They're playing for a niche media environment that that augments or or uh, amplifies the 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 ideological aspects of their message or their actions and rewards being extreme. And in some respects, it's the same dynamic we're seeing in the Senate primary campaign here in Ohio, right? That, that you don't get rewarded for being thoughtful and sensible and being Ben Sachs. Um, you get rewarded for having the gotcha moment so that someone could tweet it out and say, you know, see the moment that Senator so-and-so destroyed this judicial moment. It's all nonsense, but that's, that's the incentive structure. I agree with what you said. I, I would add, um, two elements. One, with the speed of social media, it makes it harder to check the disinformation. It's already out in the wild, it's already rampant, and it's way harder to get the correcting information to have that same momentum because of the sensationalization of the disinformation. I would also add that and I have not read the Brandeis and Thurgood Marshall transcripts. I, I, I take your word that they were. You, you were a real job. You, you, you have other things to do. I, I was pouring. I don't even have notes or a table. So I'm with you. Yeah. Um, I assume that they, the questions were um, hard and difficult. I would ask you whether they were as nasty and hostile in tone, which you can't tell tone, tone, tone not, but 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 it's just right on me. Yeah, yeah, but no, it's no. really interesting. I mean, some of the same lines of attack, right? Mm -hmm. Justice uh, then, you know, well, third marshal when he was a, a nominee for the Second Circuit, and then um, when Judge Mark then Judge Marshall was a nominee of the Supreme Court, right? He had worked representing criminal defendants. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so this, you know, does that mean he's soft on crime? Right. Does that mean, I mean, the same tropes, the same, it was there. It was, you know, they, the, the language used, the affectations used mm -hmm. kind of disguised the, the, the nastiness, but it was, um, there. But it was there. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to suggest without any empirical evidence, but I'm going to suggest <laughs> it had to do one with his skin color because there is a underlying assumption built into the foundations of this country that black people are more prone to criminality or more prone to being sympathetic to that and that they were playing on those um, evil stereotypes. But I'm also gonna suggest with regard to um, Judge Jackson that it had to do with her being a woman. I seem to remember reading somewhere that someone studied how often the women on the Supreme Court were interrupted uh, ah. during questioning. And so I think what we saw, some of that nastiness, was just the regular old <laughs> entitlement <laughs> of interrupting a woman because she can't have anything to say that's as important as the man that wants to interrupt her. Um, and I think watching it happen for hours upon hours upon hours is what felt so much more egregious about this. Because there were some questions that people would have liked the answer to. Just let her speak, let her finish. Or are you going to stand up there and perform for your million Twitter followers, right? Um, so I, I, I agree with you, but I think there are layers to what we saw. Well, you know, there were there were questions like, can you define a woman? <laughs> Senator Marsha Blackburn asked, and, and she was playing a culture war thing about, uh, you know, trying to cultivate a fear about trans kids and, and grooming pedophiles, this, this really horrible stuff. And and she said it was syrup. She didn't say it was rage, like Senator Holly and Senator Cruz and even Senator Graham. And I do think that that I, I do look at the comparison. The vote's one thing. I mean, and... and and John, right. I mean, we're, we're not going to have these bipartisan votes. I worked for Pat Leahy, who was, who was then the ranking Democrat on the Judiciary Committee when he voted for John Roberts, and 22 Democrats did. And they did it for a lot of reasons. They believed he would care about the institution. They thought it was important. Jonathan will tell me, well, he then voted against Alito. He set us on this thing. But there, there's a lot of this Hatfield-McCoy stuff about, like, who is the real wronged party in this grudge war? Um I think a couple broader things, uh, uh, though. You know, one, the, the managing around white rage is difficult because, uh, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, and there was this whole rewriting of history that Lindsey Graham did on the thing. Brett Kavanaugh was credibly accused of sexual assault. Dr. Christine Blasey Ford testified under oath about what happened to her. They just, the, the, the Republican Senate Charge Committee uh, and the administration railroaded and would not investigate it. Brett Kavanaugh felt like the agreed party. He was enraged. He yelled at senators. Senators yelled at Judge Jackson. That's a big difference, including Lindsey Graham, who is the senator on the committee that I always respected most when I was working on the committee. He voted. He was the one Republican that voted for Justice Sotomayor to vote for Justice Kagan. And what he would say is a lot of what we said earlier, that, that elections have consequences, like Mitt Romney's statement. He basically gave that from the bench. Elections have consequences. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have voted for, I wouldn't nominate somebody like this, but I, I'm going to support him. They're the president, right? You listen to him. It was a, it was a grown up in action. Something happened at Graham along the way. Um, but let me just offer one broader perspective. I, I think it's important to just say it out loud and maybe you all disagree whether it should be or not. The composition of the Supreme Court is a political matter. 
we are seeing the impact on democracy of decisions like Shelby County, which, which, which uh, uh, gutted the Voting Rights Act and United, which opened this picket for corporate money elections, the allowing of, 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 of partisan gerrymandering. We're going to see it in a decision, I believe, that's going to come up between when Judge Jackson is confirmed and when she sat on the court at the end of the term, which is to, to, to undercut, if not entirely eviscerate, Roe v. Wade. And, and, and by the way, you saw senators talking about overturning Obergefell, talking about Griswold, which is the right to privacy in your marriage to access birth control. You saw one senator talk about how the Supreme Court should not decide loving me Virginia, which is about the ban on interracial marriage. They're going way back to the well. But here's the other thing, the other context. And I, this is something I don't, I don't know if anybody agrees with you all may just totally disagree and tell me this fun thing of having a debate uh, on a stage is I think it's impossible to understand the politics of this moment because this is the part that nominations hearings aren't apart from the politics of the moment. Right. They are a part of the politics of the moment. I think it's impossible to understand what is happening, what happened in that hearing without looking at Senator Cruz and Senator Hawley, who supported the big lie and, 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 and the insurrection on 1-6. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, General Hawley giving a, a, a fist raise to the insurrectionists, which is now selling on a mug. They are still sitting on the Senate Judiciary Committee. There's been no accountability. And they're like my kids when nobody tells them no. They're going to keep pushing against the limits. And I think that it was a very hard thing to watch knowing, I don't know what tools I would have used if I was Chair Durbin in those moments, because you don't want this story to be Republican yells at Democrat. That's not a good story. And most of the Republicans were absolutely fine and within the normal bounds of questions. Um, and, and you don't want to make that the story. But I, I, that was my takeaway after was, we're not going to wrestle with at least the feel of those hearings until we sort of wrestle back with how to have normal politics again. Right. And, and it may be that the composition of the, of, of the judge, of the who is on the Supreme Court, it's now a six to three majority of Republican appointees, even though we're a 50 50 country. That may mean that, that as, as you said earlier, if, if you disagree with the judicial philosophy, you're just not going to vote for them. That's a rational choice. That's fine. You know, I think it's I, I think this was a nominee who's supported by the FOP and the, the chief chief of police. She was introduced by Tom Griffith, a conservative former federal judge. Like, I think it was a, I think it was a John Roberts nominee. I think it was an 80-20 nominee. But either way, the vote isn't what bothers me. It was the, the way the hearing went and what it says about our broader politics. So that's what I worry about. I'd love to wrestle with that. And I think the nomination stuff will kind of come along uh, if we can get there. Um, so that, that yeah, now, now I've really said, this is why you, you got to give me a desk and some notes and I'd be more hinged. I'm, I'm unhinged. I'm out on the far left here. Uh, we like, we like you. Yeah. Well, I think I think actually pivoting off of what you just said and what Marky said. Um, so Elizabeth Porter, who is an interim dean at the University of Washington Law School, and Latasha Levy, assistant pro professor of uh, American Ethnic Studies at UW, they had both noted the importance of Jackson's nomination and the breadth of her legal experience, and they had said, and they have said. Quote, Judge Jackson is a historically significant choice as a justice. She would be the first black woman to serve on the court the, and only the third black justice and the sixth female justice out of well over a hundred justices. Judge Jackson's appointment would have an enormous symbolic meaning not only for the court, the entire legal profession, but our entire nation, which has a long history of using law as a tool for discrimination. Unquote. So if Judge Jackson is confirmed, 
how do you how do you believe she will make her mark on the Supreme Court and what kind of symbolism will this mean for the general public? And I realize that we're going to be opening up to questions for individuals as well. So I'll kind of merge also her experience as a, a federal public defender and her experience on the Sentencing Commission. How, how do you all feel about that? The impact she'll make? That's a very loaded, a lot, a lot of questions. I, I just there. A lot of questions. You, all, you all take these ones. Yeah. I don't know that I'll take it the way it should go. So, I mean, look, the, the, the composition of the court matters. We have a court that um, does not is not um, particularly diverse in terms of the type of experience that um, uh, they bring. I mean, most of them went to one of two law schools. Um, there was a period of time where it was assumed that you had to have a justice from each region of the country. Um, we were long past that. Um, other than Elena Kagan, they were all appellate judges um, for some period of time. Um, that's not what the what the pattern had been historically. Um, so, in addition to her being the first black woman on the court and bringing that experience to the court, um, she will be one of the two justices that have been a trial court judge. The other being Justice Sotomayor. So she's one of only two on the court who will have had the experience of reading that printout from the Supreme Court about some procedural issue, the cases that don't come out in June, the ones that come out in the middle of the year that no one pays attention to except for lawyers, and saying, okay, what are the justices trying to make us do now? And she'll be one of only two people in that room who's actually had to struggle with a group of nine appellate lawyers who've never, you know, hardly ever seen the inside of a trial courtroom trying to actually do what they say about the trial, about evidence, about dealing with a jury, about a motion to dismiss, you, all kinds of stuff. That matters. Um, having been a public defender matters. Um, and this is not just on the Supreme Court. The Biden administration has made a priority of trying to get defenders on um, the bench because our federal courts are filled with former prosecutors. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but we do know that um, if the majority of judges are former prosecutors, that does affect uh, the outcomes. There are studies that show that the prior work and other sorts of experiences that judges have, when you look at system-wide matter, um, so those are good. And so having someone with that experience certainly uh, matters, and it'll matter in ways we won't necessarily see because it'll be the justices sitting around the, the conference room at conference. It'll be the memo that she can write to her colleagues about a draft opinion saying. Okay, let, let me explain to you what it's like actually having to, you think you are adequately accounting for the, the rights of this criminal defendant. I've done that. Let me explain to you how this actually works. And that matters in, in ways that are hard to measure, hard for us to see. But just as, you know, when Justice Sotomayor was confirmed and she was the only former trial court judge on the court, affected those sorts of conversations because she knew what actually happens where, you know, John Roberts, fine lawyer, you know, excellent appellate advocate. Don't know much about trials, right? Um, and so those sorts of things, you know, really do matter in terms of the court understanding what the implications are of some of its <laughs> Just say it, just say it. <laughs> Y'all. I think that I'm personally past symbolism, okay? So what will this symbolize? Won't her, won't her appointment be symbolic? 
where has where has symbolism gotten us for the past 233 years when we weren't sitting on the court? I'm past symbolism. And I want to know what impact will she actually have? And as a matter of fact, she's going into a 6-3 situation. And that matters. It matters. She's going into a court that is suffering from, and please correct me, Professor Adler, if I'm wrong when I say historic, it's historic to me, but my history is only four years old. On the Supreme Court, when people are concerned about conflicts of interest, when people are concerned about the shadow docket, when people are concerned about their very basic civil liberties, she's going into a 6-3. I'm worried that for all the symbolism, there will be an extraordinary amount of disappointment. Can What can she really do in the 6-3? Will, will she... I understand the role of the dissenter and how important and powerful that can be down the line. There are people in this country who do not have down the line time. And that, if I could, ooh, that irks me, y'all. I, I, I don't want to go negative because it's important and it's monumental, but we need, this country needs a little bit more than symbolism right now. And I'm not satisfied with this symbolic historical moment that could end up not saving trans kids, that could end up with people being denied the right to vote, that could end up, I mean, all of, the, all of the things, all of the things are at risk. And let's not focus on symbolism, people. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's important and not enough. So Mark and I went to law school together don't hold that She's 10 years younger than me, but we went to law school together. 40 what? what? Um, uh -huh. um, and, you know, we, we studied uh, Justice Scalia's uh, dissents, right? He was the, the lone dissenter and, and had these really strong theories about law, which are now the predominant theories of the majority on the Supreme Court. So when you're putting a justice on the Supreme Court, it's actually very much the long game in, in, in a respect. And I, I do think that this is one of the reasons I'm disappointed in how the process played out because I think this is a moment for for the court and for law that was really critical in terms of the court's integrity. And I think a, a, bi, a stronger bipartisan vote, and this, this is more helpful from the court than it is for Judge Jackson, right? The, the court that looks a lot more like America. Uh, and I also think all the issues aren't the same, right? I mean, there, there are some interesting like Justice Sotomayor and Justice Gorsuch, you don't agree on much, agree a lot on the Sixth Amendment, the right to counsel, and, and, and maybe should join that block. So, so it's not just that you have the one issue and, and, and roll it forward in time. I'll also suggest, to your point on symbolism, and, 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 and Professor Adler talked about this, about how the Biden administration has put a lot of public defenders across the courts. The Biden administration, if all, of, if all of President Biden's nominees are confirmed, he will have doubled the number of black women to ever to have served on federal circuit courts of appeals. Which is, which is both a terrible statistic, because it means there weren't very many before, but it's one of these things where, where the feeder justices come out of the lower courts, the feeder circuit courts come out of the district courts. So opening up opportunity can't just start, it's like looking at the NFL. You can't say, well, there's one black head coach and what are we going to do? You got to start going through the, the levels of assistant coaches. Um, and, and change happens slowly and it happens too slowly. I, I do want to say one, and this is, it's, it's, this can sound like BS in terms of symbol. All right. This is my romantic, this is me being romantic. All right. So call my wife, tell her I'm being romantic. 
Um, but, you know, the, and I said this in my opening, the only time that we pay any attention to who's on the court is, you know, you, you lock in a view of what a justice looks like and sounds like when they sit there at that lonely table with that big dais and all the lights on. Like everybody thinks of John Roberts as the guy that said, uh, uh, we want judges that are umpires calling balls and strikes. Everybody remembers Justice Sotomayor when she was first there. And all of a sudden, you could have a Latina on the Supreme Court. I do think it's important for the future of the profession that now what a Supreme Court justice looks like and sounds like includes somebody who looks and sounds like Judge Kentanji Brown Jackson. That isn't enough. I'm not saying it's enough. I, and, and yes, there, there's also one last point, then I'll really shut up. There's this really funny thing that's going to happen, which is unusual. And I, I've got to ask you guys a question. So, she, she's going to be confirmed in a few days, maybe tomorrow, maybe Friday. She is not going to take her position until after Justice Breyer retires at the end of the term. I don't know if she can stay on the circuit court or what she does. She or what? She won't, but she could. She could, but she, she won't, could. Right? So we act as if confirmation is actually the next step. So technically confirmation is the Senate giving its consent to the president actually appointing. She doesn't actually become a justice until the president makes the appointment. So if you remember through the fog, of the, you know, learning about Marbury versus Madison, the whole idea that the appointment was made, it was signed and sealed, it was never delivered. The actual appointment was not finalized. That's actually what signed and sealed delivered on yours was about. Uh, I'm not sure about that. But um, uh, but so so the actual appointment perfects then the, the practice is to not, to not serve. And it wouldn't really... Any case that she were to go back and serve on on the DC Circuit would be a case if it were. Uh, she couldn't rule. She couldn't rule. So right, there's, right. there's no point. So, but but for there's her this odd, The point is, there's going to be this odd period of time, right? Where where it's I I, I quit, it's like a cafe table. You know, when you're waiting for somebody, they paid their check and they have the water, and you're waiting to get up to the table. That that's a curse. You're like Justice Breyer, can I can I help you with your dissent? Actually, uh, can I, actually, it's good for. I mean, in the sense that you should take a vacation. Well, no, I mean, if you talk to. To, to folks who have been through this process, you know they will you know they will talk about the learning curve and the amount of time it takes to put your chambers together and so on. I mean, in some respects, she will have the time to make sure she has her clerks set up, make sure so on, begin looking at, begin um, uh, uh, familiarizing herself with um, the cert petitions and so on. I mean, it'll, it'll actually make it easier for her to, in some respects, hit the ground running in the next term because she won't be playing catch up the way, you know, with the exception of Justice Gorsuch, um, you know, you, you look at the last 10, 15 justices confirmed the court, that first year or two, they're saying very little, yeah. they're writing very little, they're, they're kind of going with the majority on pretty much everything because they're still getting their sea legs. And in some respects, this will give her time to, I think, leap ahead in that process. Uh, I would just add in terms of, right, I think just the symbolic meaning, uh, that's not enough. And we should not focus on the symbolic effect of her appointment and her being on the Supreme Court. And that it's not enough that the court looks like America. That's just the start of it. And how Justice her impact beyond, her impact will depend on what she does on the court. That's bottom line. Um, just being a person who's an you know, African-American woman by itself is not enough. And so it, she'll be judged and she'll inspire, have that kind of intangible impact based on her rulings, her decisions, her opinions. Um, and 
I think that's what that would have, even if it's an, if it's a, even if it's a dissent, the dissent could have long-term ultimately have uh, influence and long-term. And so the dissent, even a dissent can have meaning, can have value, can have impact on the court. So, and we, you got to take the long game with, with this. It's not, it's not just short term. It's about rulings that could have an impact decades later. Um, and I think of, uh, Thurgood Marshall, um, when he was fighting, engaging in the legal battle against segregation, how did he feel in 1930 about, oh, yeah, of course, we're going to end segregation through litigation. I, I can't imagine he was thinking, oh, piece of cake, right? That he, but he took a long view and went at it for years, decades, to get Jim Crow overturned, and he eventually succeeded in 54. Uh, he, the only way he could persevere is to believe, right? This the short-term reality is not the ultimate reality, and you've got to keep fighting and doing what you can. Um, and so, I think Justice Jackson can have that impact, um, even as a dissenter, if she, if we think about it in terms of that view. And I think that's that's what gives me hope and inspiration is to take the long view. Otherwise, it's kind of bleak right now, <laughs> at least from my point of view. But, um, but yeah, so I think she can have that impact, but symbolic is not enough. And I think that was the wrong, that's the wrong term to think about. That's not, it's intangible, she can have an, an intangible impact with what she does in the court. Well, we can turn over to your questions. If you're here in person, you can line up next to the microphone to my left. Um, and if you're joining us virtually, you can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And you can also tweet them, if you're very fancy, to at the City Club. Jonathan's texting himself a question right now. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was going to text him a, a, a tough question. Yeah. So. Are you checking his Twitter? Yeah. Yeah. I'm feeding the chairman. Uh, that's right. Hi. So... Uh, I think I'm getting older, but the judges seem like they're getting younger, and I don't know if that's my misperception. But um, is that a true statement? I don't know. And what do you make of the fact, if that is true, that Supreme Court judges are getting nominated at younger and younger ages, speaking of playing longer? Well, I'll, I'll start because I this was look. I'm, I'm sitting up here with three people who all could and might be should be federal judges. Um, no, but no. For, for seriously, uh, nobody should ever nominate me for anything. I, I'll be the first to call temperament. But I sort of work at worked on this. So yeah, I, I think I think the Republicans have always been better at this than the Democrats of understanding that you are playing against time. It is very hard to get a judge on the court, or uh, and it's certainly even harder to get a justice on the court. And and you might only have one chance. I mean, one of like some of it has been the, that the Republicans blocked uh, President Obama from appointing Merrick Garland, but some of it is just timing. And and, and I mean, Justice Ginsburg did not plan to die in the last few months of President Trump's term. Um, so, but but you don't know when you're going to get another chance. And so there's a way of thinking about this in terms of like the way an insurance company thinks about it, actuarial tables. I got to buy three decades, not two. Now. That, that certainly, we can talk about Supreme Court reform, it's a whole other thing of like, is that good? What did lifetime mean in 1790s versus now? But no, I, I think that we've seen a number of very young nominees put on lower courts and on the Supreme Court. And you just look and you know that, wow, you know, John Roberts was, uh, you know, I think, I mean, this is when I first got on this, he was 51 or 52, and he's still a relatively, I mean, he's going to be there for decades, right? 
So I, I think that's part of like the, the stakes of the moment, how to maximize value out of it. Now we can talk about whether that's good and whether it's good. Jonathan alluded to this before. Up until 1975, the majority of justices on the court had not previously been judges. You, you, you know, Earl Warren, the chief justice, understood the importance of making sure Brown v. Board of Education was unanimous. He was a politician. He understood the value of like the the, the statement of that. Thing. So, so that's another another. You know, are we have the right qualifications? Is it right to have this young? No, they are getting. You are not getting older. That was the short answer. They are getting younger. They're getting younger, and it's a deliberate strategy, especially among uh, GOP. Um, they're actually more, much more strategic about deliberately going out and trying to get as uh, the nominees for the federal federal uh, lower courts and the Supreme Court to be as young as possible. Uh, Clarence Thomas, he's been on the court, I think, about 30 years. He was in his, I think, early 40s. Uh, yeah, and he's now been, he's still 70, he's 72. That's still pretty, fairly young uh, in terms of Supreme Court age. He could be here, be on the court for another decade. So 40 years, he's here 40 years. I think there's a problem with lifetime appointments. I don't think the problem is uh, lifetime appointments is a constitutional um, part of being a justice. So unless you have a constitutional amendment, it's, it's hard to deal with um, with lifetime appointment. People try to argue, you can get around that um, and you know argue for term limits, right? 18 year term limits, so on and so forth. But I, I don't think that's gonna happen. I do think there's a need for court reform. And one of the things I've argued for in terms of trying to depolitize the court is to, um, I don't call it, I don't call it court patching, I call it court balancing that you try to appoint, if you can, an even number of justices instead of having an odd number. And that, for a lot of reasons, I think that might help. For, for one thing, in order to get a Supreme Court opinion that uh, as a majority rule, you have to have a super majority vote of justices vote in favor. If you have, say, 12 justices, you need seven, a 75 vote. And so there, you, we, I think there might, there needs to be done, something needs to be done, but uh, for on that end, in terms of lifetime appointments, I'm not sure what can be done. The problems with lifetime appointments. Just, um, just in terms of age, it's 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 a little more complicated. I mean, if you, if you go all the way back, like in the late 1800s or early, late uh, 1700s, early 1800s, there were lots of justices in their 30s, but life expectancy was much life expectancy was much shorter. They had like two years left. In in the 20th, <laughs> uh, Joseph Story was on the court for a while, and he's the youngest ever. He was not. He was confirmed at 32. Um, the, the youngest in the 20th century was William Douglas, um, who was confirmed at age 40 and who thought that this was a midpoint in his career and actually thought he was going to eventually run for president. Um, obviously, it didn't happen. Um, Thomas was 43. Um, the average age of judicial nominees, both for appellate courts and, and the Supreme Court, has dipped, you know, has dropped, but there's still some spread. And as has already been noted, um, a focus on age is one of many ways in which um, the way Republicans think about judicial nominees and the way Democrats think about judicial nominees differ. Um, what's better or worse depends on your view, but 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 um, uh, it's definitely observable. I mean, the average age of, of appellate nominees going back to Reagan has been lower in Republican administrations than Democratic administrations. And so... That's true no matter which Republican administration you pick or which Democratic administration you pick. So it was true of Obama, it was true of Clinton, true of Reagan and, and both Bushes. All right, we have another question. The gentleman at the end, and I apologize for not remembering your name, 
it kind of took the wind out of my sails, but I'm going to say it anyway. He mentioned the name Earl Warren and the era of the Warren Court and the, uh, we'll call them conservatives, Republicans, were going crazy when that was going on. They felt it was never going to end. It was one decision after another. I don't have to tell you what they work, as you all know. So, I mean, I, I was a history major. I like history. You take a long view. And it's interesting. We're getting all caught up in the immediate politics of this. But how long is Judge Jackson going to be on the court? How old is she? I don't know. Who's, 51. She's 50? 50, 51, yeah. Okay, well, she's got a She's healthy. She's got three decades left. You know? Um, I won't be here. She, uh, let's take a long view of this. It, it ebbs and flows. Um, I'm glad she's on the court. It's time. But she's not going to just overturn the court in the next couple terms, okay? And I think we're all getting caught up in the TV, everybody. We're all caught up in the immediacy of this. And nobody's mentioning Earl, the Earl Warren era. Nobody's mentioning Plessy versus Ferguson. 60 million Americans had already voted. And I think people are feeling like, hey, you know, we got a, we got a pretty, we got a 50-50 country here. The 6-3 court, which by the way, I, I was going to answer your question differently in Longview. 
Justice Judge Jackson was asked a question by Marshall Blackburn. When the Supreme Court overturns Roe, are you going to respect that as precedent? I think change is coming fast and it's coming in a hard way. And that's that's the court she's going to be joining. So so I, I look at that. So I think there are people that feel really frustrated with a court that doesn't feel representative of the country. Will it happen? No, no, uh, not in the short term, because you, you've got to have a, uh, a overcome a filibuster to do it. You got you got 50 Democrats. You would need you would need 60 to, to do it or, or to change the rules. So I don't think it's realistically likely to happen. I do think it represents a, a, a reckoning with the role of the court in our country, our society, and our law. That's an important reckoning. And how do we? How do the professors talk about it? How do the activists talk about it? How do the lawyers talk about it? So, so to me, it it stands in not to go back to symbolism, but it stands in for a broader conversation about reform and change. And do we have a court that is is, is in the right place in our democracy or not? We'll see. I don't know. Maybe maybe somebody else handicaps it differently, but I don't think it's likely to happen soon. Whether it should happen or not, is a different question. I'm just gonna add, I'm gonna make two points. One, um, when it comes to judicial politics, Republicans are particularly good at one thing, which is punching back twice as hard as at hard, twice as hard. So you don't give Judith Hope and Pam Reimer a vote because an election is coming up in '88 for a lower court. You don't do you make Lillian Bevere. Um, who was the first woman to receive tenure on the fa faculty of the law school of the University of Virginia. You let her nomination sit for over a year to an open seat on the Fourth Circuit that no one had a prior claim on. Republicans hit back twice as hard and stall people like Elena Kagan from getting confirmed. Um, and you talk about, um, you talk, you invent the filibuster for judicial nominees because no, prior to uh, Miguel Estrada, no judicial nominee had been, who had majority support had ever been filibustered, um, and Republicans decided, okay, well, we can filibuster back. You use a rule change to eliminate the filibuster for lower court judges, Republicans will say, well, when it's our turn, we'll do it for, for Supreme Court. So expanding the court opens a door that you don't know who's going to get the last turn. And I, you know, I tend to think of the politics of judicial nominations as your two kids sitting in the back seat during a road trip, and they kind of start off doing this. And then it elevates the slaps, and then it elevates the punches, and then eventually so somebody's gonna bring up the slap. I you gotta, you gotta pull the car, you gotta pull the car over the road because they're really gonna hurt each other. And we're past the point of the kids, of, of the juveniles in the backseat hurting each other. But I do think expanding the court does that. If the concern is about the role of the court in American society, fighting over control of it doesn't solve that problem. The concern is that the court has too much power. Well, then we need to be thinking about what sort of power the court has. Markey noted a bunch of important historical things that happened in this country far later than they should have. But the vast majority of them, the court was the lagging indicator. The 30th, 14th, and 15th Amendment said what they said. It took the court well over half a century to pay any attention to what the Reconstruction Congress had done. As Akhil Amar points out, through most of our history, the Constitution has been more progressive than the court has been willing to acknowledge it. And I, I think that should be a reminder. The Warren Court was an aberration. And, and part of our problem is we let the court decide and resolve so many things that in the old days we had to sit down over beers in a place like this and realize we are different people with different priorities and different interests, and we got to work it out. We can't expect some old white guys in robes to solve it for us. Sean, we are going to write a new constitution over beer and happy dog. Are you ready? <laughs>
So anyway, I just think I just think court expansion is, is a diversion because if the concern is we wait in June for the court to tell us what everything is going to matter, we're actually that's the problem. We should be expecting our legislatures and and the folks to be elected to be solving those problems, not life tenure judges. I would just add that that's when I talk about court balancing, I, I totally agree. It's just kind of resulting tit for tat if you try to get more just liberal justice on the court to get a democratic majority. Um, and that's why I argue for a balanced court. So it's six three conservative to three liberal justices. I would, if we're if we're going to do court expansion, I would just add three, say open up three spots so that President Biden could nominate three justices. So it would end up six six even between liberal and conservative, and it's creating an equilibrium on the court rather than let's get a majority so we can impose our will. That's uh, court. My proposal won't happen, but I think if we're going to expand the court. You should not try to do it to achieve political, um, to be able to assert your your will, right, and uh, your your judicial, um, uh, you know, ideology and your judicial agenda for the country. No, it should try to be about promoting kind of um, equilibrium on the court. And I would say that the one, even though there's there are problems with, in, in my view, with what some of the what the court recent court has been doing with some of its decisions. The one good thing about since the Rehnquist court, uh, that's been really good, what the Rehnquist court has done, what Chief Justice Roberts has continued is having a very small docket, that the court does not decide as many cases as they do, as they used to do under the Warren court. I think roughly about seven, they hear about 70 or so cases a year. It used to be hundreds of cases during the Warren and Burger court. And so I think that that's one thing I totally agree with, small docket, which would, of course, limit the power of the court to do damage. Um, and yes, it limits the power of the court to uh, issue decisions that you may agree with, but I think overall, we want to minimize the court's presence and um, impact on society, let the democratic process work. Thank you. So I think we have time for one more question before we wrap up. Wow, pressure. I hope it's a good question. <laughs> Last one. Uh, thank you very much, first of all, this is really great. So, um, as you already pointed out, Chief Jackson, when she joins the court, will be in the minority, 63 minority. And so, in some of the more, I guess, contested or controversial cases, she may not have uh, say, or she won't have influence on those potentially. Um, long term, you know, she may, as the court changes. Um, what are some things that she can do, though, in the short term, right? She's got some authority over some states in terms of emergency appeals. Is there, are there other things that she could do in the short term to exert some of that influence? Yeah. I mean, well, first thing honestly, I'm going to challenge the, the premise of the question a little bit, which is when, when judicial nominations occur, we're all thinking, we all think about what the judges are going to do about the issues that we're focused on, but they're there a long time, and the issues that the court's thinking about 10 years ago from now might not be the same issues. So just to give one kind of the best illustration of this historically, Franklin Roosevelt effectively nominates the entire court over his presidency. And he's nominating them for one reason, right? Are you going to uphold the New Deal? Well, Franklin Roosevelt's gone. It's the 1950s. Whether or not the New Deal is constitutional or whatever else, that's not what the court's thinking about. The court's thinking about criminal justice. It's thinking about civil rights. It's thinking about a whole bunch of issues that the Roosevelt administration wasn't thinking about. And those same folks that were a united block on the New Deal are now all over the place when it comes to, again, you know, in particular, uh, civil rights and, and criminal justice. And there are issues that we know are there in the background that don't divide the court 
on traditional left-right lines. Um, criminal justice issues, at least, well, some criminal justice issues um, divide the court um, that way. We, we are seeing um, other divisions among the conservative justices on you know, how clear criminal laws have to be, um, um, what some of the standards are. Um, there are issues that are esoteric, but that matter, like the Dormant Commerce Clause, that are not going to split the current court along right-left lines. There's a case in before the court next term about whether or not California can say you can only sell animal products like bacon in California that were produced in accordance with California's rules, no matter where in the world they're produced. So the pig farmer in Indiana that wants to sell bacon in California has to comply with California's laws, which are more humane, require more humane raising of the animal. That's a big issue. It, it's huge for things like climate change, right? Can states adopt clean fuel standards in their state? I'm not going to divide the court on right-left lines. And over time, and, and so there are going to be issues where her vote could matter. Um, it might not be the abortion, ca abortion cases or something, but there are cases where her vote's going to matter. And then there are going to be cases where she comes to the table with a type of experience that the other justices don't have. And there are going to be cases where that expertise matters. And the justices know that. Right. I mean, they know, you know, who's a specialist at what and who came to the court with what types of expertise. And it's, you know, we're not going to see it because they're not going to be you know, holding those discussions in public. But she will have that impact. And it, it again, it will be hard to it'll be hard to diagnose or identify. But, but I'm, I'm confident, you know, that she will have that sort of impact because of the sort of person she is and the sort of experience she has. I would just say yes, and I don't. I don't think you should devalue the the impact a concurring opinion or a dissenting opinion can have. So it's not just about the decision; it's about how the court reaches the decision, and that can be very, very influential down the road, long term. I'll just give you one example of a concurrence that's really been hugely impactful uh, in, in a case called Youngstown. Um, there's a concurrence which set up the framework in a concurrence, the framework for how you deal with presidential power. And that's now de, de facto the way the court thinks about presidential power. So don't think that if you're not, just because you're not writing a majority opinion, it's not going to be impactful. You can have impact because that the important thing about the court, which makes it different from a political body, it has to explain its decisions, explain why, and the explanation really matters. And so if you can explain something differently in a concurrence and, or in a dissent, that can really have impact, influence on how the law develops. So especially in the lower courts or in state courts. So um, she can still have power in that way, given what the court really does. It's because it has to explain something. Thank you all so much. So thank you all for joining us for today's forum. Happy Dog takes on the SCOTUS nomination. We have been joined today by Jonathan Adler, Professor of Law and Director at the Center for Business Law and Regulation at the Case Western Reserve University School of Law. Reginald O, Professor of Law at Cleveland State University, Marshall College of Law. Jeremy Paris, Principal at the Raven Group and former Chief Counsel for Nominations and Oversight for the Senate Judiciary Committee, and Marky Robinson, an attorney at Eaton. Today's forum is part of the City Club in the Community Series sponsored by Bank of America. We are grateful for their support. Be sure to join the City Club this Friday, April 8th, 
We will hear from former state Senator Nina Turner about her second run for Ohio's 11th district. It is part of a series of forums leading up to the primary election on May 3rd. And just announced this week, Senator Rob Portman will be speaking on uh, Thursday, April 21st to discuss his work in Ukraine, other priorities and accomplishments of his decade long tenure in the Senate. Tickets are available for these forums and purchase tickets and learn more at cityclub.org. Thank you all for joining us today, both here at Happy Dog and streaming live. I'm Kira Krivash. Our forum is adjourned. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you.